Welcome to episode 20 of Texting, your weekly podcast about tech and tech startups, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? So, 20 episodes. Yeah, it's kind of a marker, huh? What do you think about that? I'm sort of shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I was seeing, I was looking at my list of, of episodes, you know, in my... Um, iTunes and I was like, man, 18, 19, 20, it's just uh keeps on going. We still haven't got uh like a formula. <laughs> we, we sort of do it differently every every few weeks or whatever we sort of go in, in the direction. I think the formula is there no there is no formula. Yeah. The formula is to just have fun. Talk about talk about stuff we find interesting. So what's so uh, oh, okay. let's hear an update on the tweet miner. I want to hear uh, any any new uh, sign up paying customers this week. Oh, yeah, there's definitely new paying customers. In fact, let me just send you a quick uh, link via Skype here for you to have a look at. And uh, for the audience at home, just go to tweetminer.net forward slash stats. And uh, click on that. Those top six uh, things, the, the top six lines on the stats page there are the interesting ones. So um, there is now nine premium subscribers, five plus level subscribers and one max yearly. So in terms of revenue, what that equates to, the, the max yearly, the, that one subscriber equals $200. The plus monthly are five bucks each, so that's 25 bucks. And the premium monthly, they're 10 bucks each. So it's about 135 bucks a week, a, a month at the moment. Nice. That was up from 50 bucks? Something like that last week. I can't remember. But the, the only thing is, is that if you look at this, it, it, if you actually look at the number of customers, so there's 15 customers, 1.6% ratio. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I think the business model is slightly wrong. Certainly the price points. Why? Because to earn, because I think realistically speaking, I mean, you know, to make a decent living, I probably should be taking home 5,000 a month, you know, to make a decent living from this thing. Oh, to mean you mean to make this thing worth what your time? Yeah, basically to make to make this thing so that it can be the sort of because at the end of the day, you know, I'm going for the holy grail of, you know, being a one man developer, creating a product and being able to live off that, you know, with TweetMiner. That's the theory behind it. Right. Well, I mean, let's, let's, let's assume you did no consulting work at yeah. all. And all yeah. you did was this. Yeah. And assuming what you can make as a consultant and, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to make something in the hundred to $200,000 range, depending on how much you charge an hour, how many hours you work a month. Yeah. Right. So you're going to have to make at least... To replace that, you know, eight to 15, 16 grand a month, if you're if you're entirely replacing your income with this. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, so I was sort of thinking on the on the low side then. So what so what you're saying is you need to be able to make eight grand a month. Yeah. Let's let's just go. Let's say let's say a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Let's say conservatively, that's all you're really trying to make. Um, okay. A hundred thousand dollars a year is a point where you're not getting rich, but you could. You could do this rather than work a, a, a job or consult. And nine grand a month. Is that is that nine grand a month? Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah, nine. Yeah, about nine grand a month. Yeah, so that's going to be a hundred and eight thousand a year, like eight and a half between eight and a half and nine thousand a month. Okay, yeah. so that's even more than I. That, so that's that's really, you know, when you put it that way. I suppose I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking that I would always do some sort of consultancy work on the side. But if you put it that way, which I think is is what people would like. You know, they want to retire, right? They they. Not retire, but you want to just focus on that one business. Yeah, you want to focus on doing what you like, enjoy doing. I mean, uh, you know, it's there's a certain amount of of this of enjoyment and in, in, in helping other people build stuff, but it's not nearly as much fun or rewarding as building stuff that you want to build. You know, your own ideas. So, I mean, if you think of the you know the thirty seven signals as the sort of iconic example of it, is they they were a consulting company and then they started Basecamp, and I think it took them like a year and a half before they were able to completely throw out consulting. I'd yeah. have to look that up on the web, but I think I remember that being, being less than like 18 months. And now that was also supporting more than one person. So maybe they had to support three or four people. I don't know. So you, you, that means it would have to make considerably more than eight or nine grand a month. So maybe. I mean, so, so looking at these stats here, so we've got 911 people registered. Uh -huh. We've got, um, 15 customers, which is 1.6%, and we've got 135 bucks revenue. So to create the kind of revenue that we're talking about, um, and an interesting point is this is the revenue before the affiliate cut. But to create nine grand revenue, there would need to be 60,000 users. 
right? And that's before the affiliate cut. And the affiliate thing is very interesting because if you look at the affiliate signups there, the affiliate thing, like bearing in mind that TweetMine has now been up for the guts of two months. Right. The affiliate thing's only been up for seven days and it already accounts for 15% of the entire user base <laughs> in mm. seven days. So what we're saying is, is that any of the, any of the paid signups via the affiliates, you know, that's 50% of your revenue gone right there. So it's not going to be very long before the affiliate sign-up is, you know, completely overtakes the normal sign-up. Well, then yeah, may, you, you, you might think of raising your price a little bit. Well, but, but, but based on those figures, it means that it would need 120,000. Like, so <laughs> if affiliates are getting 50% and, uh, you know, just if you, if you just ramp it all out, basically it, it's going to need 120,000 free subscribers to equal 9,000 revenue for me. Right. Which to me sounds like, I don't even know whether the $100 a month server would support, you know, 120,000 people. I, I'm guessing it wouldn't. I think you'd probably have to pay you know, significantly more than a hundred bucks a month to, to serve that many people. Because every yeah. day, the other thing is every day at the moment with a thousand people, a hundred people actually use it a day. So if you, you know, just times that by 120, so it's going to be 12,000 people. a day. So. Yeah. You probably have to, you would probably have to upgrade your, your, your bottom line cost would have to increase certainly, you know, maybe more than a hundred dollars, maybe it would be $500 a month or something, but thousand dollars a month. But, so I'm thinking the minimum plan needs to move from five bucks to twenty bucks. Wow. Huh. Twenty dollars a month. Yeah. Now, is there a are there are there similar services in the space? I mean, I don't mean they have to do the exact same thing or necessarily competitors, but that charge anything like that in, the, in their. Well, there's there's CoTweet, who interest uh, there's there's CoTweet and Hootsuite, and interesting enough, I just. <laughs> I just found out this week that, um, that in fact, Eric uh, Woodward was telling me this, that, that he thinks Hootsuite has about 10 people working for them. Eric from Trim? Yeah, Eric from Trim, yeah. Who we interviewed in what episode, what was that, like 14 or? Something like that. 13 or something. Yeah, so um, he, uh, wow. So who's, no, is that off of revenue or is that off of uh like VC investment. Oh, VC, I think. Then they're, they're, they're all free, these other... I mean, I think I'm the only one that's actually charging. Yeah, well, you know, and, and clearly people pay for it. People... I mean, because it's not that much money, and I think if people are going to pay for this, they're hardcore Twitter users. Well, you know what it is? It's it's businesses. I mean, uh, the the people who've paid for it so far, there's there's been a whole tranche of um, virtual assistants, and, uh -huh. what, and what these virtual assistants do is they basically manage um, other companies' social networking campaigns. Right. So the idea for them of having a system like this where they may be able to have, I don't know, put in 40 people's Twitter accounts into the same system. So they're, they're a business and then they can manage 40 people's Twitter accounts through it. You know, that's, that works well for them. Well, so that would allow you, you know, what you could do is you can make this thing charge more depending on the number of accounts they have. Yeah, basically. That would be one way to scale it. Yeah, I, I saw, I think you forwarded me a link. There was some, someone who was a virtual assistant. I think they had a blog on for virtual assistants or website yeah. and uh, she gave a really kind of glowing review and she did like a 30 minute how-to video or something yeah it was great i was amazed oh wow i mean so that's really good you're making people happy and they're finding value in it and especially if businesses are using it that's a real key value because businesses will pay money for things where consumers you know are well they're they're finding value but it's just that my assumptions about it were all wrong you know i i just thought that the sign up you know if i had it I guess what I thought was, if I had it at five bucks entry level, huh. that the, the sign-up rate would be five percent kind of thing, and that was just clearly wrong. Amazingly, it's exactly what we described last week. It's one point six percent. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's weird. I mean, I've just got this sneaking suspicion that whatever price you have it at, as long as it's within reason, it'll probably stick around one point six percent. So, yeah, you know, there was a there was a great article of, about that Joel Spolsky had written like four or five years ago on the subject of how to price your product. And basically it was like, I can't remember how it works, but essentially like you can charge more, you'll have fewer paying customers, you can charge more, but the revenue might turn out to be the same anyway. Yeah. So, and I, I can't remember all the dynamics that go on. And it's not, you know, it's all just kind of like you have to sort of test the waters in your market and see what works, but. Well, I mean, I, I basically put up a post about it on Get Satisfaction and asked some of the people who were paying and, and said, look, I think the business model's wrong. I think I'm going to have to put the price up. What do you think about that? And everyone said they didn't mind. So, yeah. 
I, I think, you know, yeah. it's just a question of getting to the people who are going to find this valuable, really. Well, you know, and you can grandfather in the people paying for a year or whatever, you know, the people already paid, say, look, I'm going to raise prices, but you're grandfathered in for X period of time. Um, and the, um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're like, if, if you're, if you're, if essentially what you're saying is, I need to raise the price, otherwise this isn't a business for me. And if they're like, no, if people don't want to do that, then like, fine, then the product's going to go away eventually because it's, it's not going to be worth my time. Yeah, order. yeah, exactly. But yeah. I can make this thing, you know, I can continue to improve it and make it really great. I mean, he's like, what you're seeing here is just the beginnings and there's all kind of things we can do with it. But I got to, I have to be, you know, I have to believe that there's a revenue stream that just is worth my time. Well, the other thing is, let's say it did go to the sort of 100,000 free user mark. I mean, I guess what I could do, although it makes me shudder to think about it, is put advertising in the free users. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know much about the advertising market, and it, it seems to me that there's kind of um, – uh, yeah, I guess probably have to experiment because I, I think I've heard two completely opposite opinions on it that it's really hard to make any money in advertising unless you have massive scale, massive numbers. Yeah. And you get the, the pay per click or the pay per impressions or whatever they whatever the terms are they're using is, you know, so low and I don't know. Um, but then I've occasionally hear time here when people are making a lot of money. So maybe just something you would ex could experiment with. Yeah, it's like a lot of things. It, all, it probably all depends on your size and your audience and and the, the medium how you're delivering the advertisements to them. And okay, so I got another problem with Tweet Miner. Okay, <laughs> so I put. Um, okay, so people started saying they wanted a way of tracking what was happening next, and they wanted me to give them a way to vote for what, what to do. So um, Get Satisfaction isn't great at that, but User Voice is. So now I've got this big red feedback button on the side that goes to User Voice, and people can vote for what they, what they want. So lo and behold, what do people say they want? You know, the thing that gets the highest votes is a way of viewing multiple Twitter streams at the same time. Which okay. basically For, goes so. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? So you have two different accounts, and you're and you're watching both of them at the same time. Yeah, basically. You, or it might say like, or it might you might have ten, you ten. might have like a little marker that says that has the name of the stream, and then it has the. the well, but basically the, ten. So like going going across the screen, they can just look at ten different streams. You know, from all from all their Twitter activity, they can look at it all at the same time. Right. Okay. Right. Which is you know fine. But it's completely and utterly against the UA, the UI paradigm as it's as it is at the moment. So, oh, I, oh, such as you've designed it, you mean? Yeah. So basically, the UI paradigm is the concept of a signal chain, you know, like like an audio signal chain. I don't know if you've seen that before, but basically, we've got you know each each navigational component points through to the next, and you can only make one selection so that it's very easy to follow what's highlighted. So in the main nav, you know, you can see okay, Twitter's highlighted, and then that points to the Twitter accounts. And then you can see, okay, Justin Vincent Twitter account is highlighted. And then that points to the Twitter streams. And you can see, okay, uh, tweets I posted is highlighted. And then there you have the panel of what, you know, so if you follow the signal chain, it makes a lot of sense what the one panel of content is. But that paradigm doesn't work with multiple streams. So you have to reorganize the UI to make that work. Yeah, either reorganize the UI or have a totally different screen. Hmm. That's what I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna yeah, have to might, have another yeah, screen. Might, maybe that's the best way. Is you build a second yeah. type of screen organization, and some people you can choose. It's another view, other, basically. Another view. Yeah, because in some, uh, yeah, that might. Because then if it, if it turns out you roll that out, and because people think they want something, they turn out that that doesn't really work very well, or you're not really happy with it, then you can always just say we're gonna discontinue it. You oh, know. Yeah, that was the response from the Business of Software forum, you know, because I posted up this conundrum and, and, you know, I got a response, a couple of responses back saying, you know, what people say they want and what they think they want and what they actually want are, are very different. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to anticipate how something's going to work until you actually start using it. You think, oh, you know, and I, you know, I, yeah, it's always hard until you actually use something for real. So, yeah, I, it, it, and the great thing about the software, especially web software, is you can you get malleable. You can change it. You can roll things back. You can whatever. So yeah, you can you can you can roll back and say this is like you know Tweetminer Labs, you know experimental view. That's a good idea. You know, and say we're an experimental. If you want to try the experimental view, give your feedback on it. Do you like it? Do you prefer it? Do you like it if it did different things? Well, whatever. I think you know. I think rather than actually do it out, I'm going to do it in mockups, Balsamic mockups. 
and just get the people to sort of look at it and vote on it and say, so I'll go with the new screen concept. So it will have this, the existing look and feel, because a lot of people do like this because this has a lot of simplicity. But then, you know, this other one, this complex screen could be the sort of power user screen maybe. Yeah. And like you said, you want to keep it simple, but in, in, I think you said in previous our previous podcast about how you, you wanted to take the sort of Apple approach to UI design, which is like keep it really simple but provide sophisticated features that people could get to. Yeah. But you don't throw everything out them in front so that so the immediately the first time they look at the product they're just like, Wow, I have no idea how to even start using this thing. Yeah. You know, and that's that's probably one of the reasons Twitter took on took off is it was so easy and it didn't take anyone any time to figure out how to use it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you do that. This is like a bad not a bad idea, you know, it's like minimal viable product thing, right? So, you know, it's just minimal viable iteration. You're just going to like throw a mock-up, throw it out there, have people vote on it. And, you know, maybe, maybe the one they vote on, unless it's a clear winner, there could be a couple that you kind of like, and you just take that feedback and go, okay, here's what I think is, the, is based on what I'm hearing. Yeah. Throw, then you design that one. See what people think. Yeah. And of course the other problem is, is because my, I, I've to actually even do this, I've had to order a new screen because I'm, my technology is so behind the times. My laptop's only 1024 by 768. So <laughs> on my screen. Is that screen, what you code on all Yeah, that? that's what I code on. So I can't. Holy like, smoke. That's actually the main reason why TweetMiner looks like it does, because I don't have any more screen real estate to make it look bigger. <laughs> so, uh, so I've ordered a, you know, 200 bucks screen that's going to give me a sensible size screen. A whole $200? Yeah, a whole $200. That's a problem, huh? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You did caution to the wind, boy. Yeah. dollars <laughs> on a monitor. Well, you know. I've I've always been a huge fan of um, big screens, big real estate. I think ever since ever, I had my first 21 inch monitor in 1993, hmm. and wow. I've never gone back. Now over the last that whatever, must have cost you about 10 grand at the time or something. 2,500 dollars. Oh, no, I mean, it's still a pretty significant chunk of change. It was still it was, a, it was still a, a Pentium 486, <laughs> you know, with like Windows. I, I don't think it was NT at the time. I think it was Windows. Uh, but I mean, three. the resolution must have still not been that great. It must have, it, everything must have been uh, huge on a 21 inch screen. It was 1280 by 1024, which was huge at the time because so everybody was actually. Else, so in, when was this? 96? When was that? 1993. So in You're 1993, right? you had better resolution than I've got now. Yeah. Boy, oh, that mo- the monitor weighed like 70 pounds. I, I mean, bet. it was monstrous. Whenever I moved, I had to carry that thing. And, uh, it was huge. It was a backbreaker. I mean, I, I had that all the way up until about three or four years ago. I had that same monitor. I had, and then I, then I had two of them, two Dell 21 inches, big CRTs. And then about four or five years ago, I ended up getting two Dell or, or Sony flat screens that are 21 inch flat screens. I like and working anyway, that way. My, my point is that I, I've, I think that my productivity is dramatically increased with, with, the real, with screen real estate. Um, because you can see more stuff and you don't have to, you don't have to be moving stuff around. And it's like, whenever I worked on a cramped screen, I feel like I can't even work. And over the years I had different various friends of mine and people, every time they were like, you know, since I was like the tech guy, right. People would call me up and say, Oh, you know, Jay, what, you know, what should I get? And I'm like, listen, I know this is sound like crazy, but get the 20 on a screen. And like, what? I was just going to get the 17. I'm like, no, I'm telling, I'm telling you, you'll yeah. love it. And every single one, I probably like half a dozen people over the years, took my advice and afterwards they're like oh this is the most awesome thing really and then and so yeah i just from personal experience i just feel it was such a productivity booster and it was kind of like everything working on a big desk or a big table as opposed to working on like your lap <laughs> you know yeah yeah and it's like you just you can't spread stuff out you can't see enough stuff you're constantly flipping through papers you can't think and so um but I actually read something, I don't know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago about, there was a study and they talked about that, you probably find this on Google easily, is that increased, this increased real, uh, screen real estate was one of the biggest productivity enhancers, like increased productivity by like 30 or 30% or something. That's really interesting. So if you're like, you know, I mean, obviously, well, it's I'll, one of the biggest productivity enhancers, even compared to like, you know, computer speed, because, you know. Well, I'm, I'm going to be able to have the two screens now, because I'll have the one on the laptop, which is 1024 by 768. And then I'll have the 19-inch screen that I got. So I haven't quite gone up to 21-inch. But, you know, for me, going from going from this tiny little 14-inch to a 19-inch is going to be a big difference. Yeah, we want to go baby steps with you, right? You, know, yeah. you want to blow your mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, looking at these, like, 27-inch, 27 27 you know. Bloody hell. Huge. 
And uh, I would get two of those suckers, man. I, you know, of course, I've, I have a background in the trading industry, and these guys who are traders, I mean, they would have like eight, 12 sometimes, sometimes 16 of these like 17 or eight, 19. <laughs> I mean, I have, I'm not saying I haven't worked that way. I mean, when, when working for companies, then I would usually work that way. And I remember I spent um, a year working with Flash and, you know, that was a scenario where you definitely needed the two screens because, you, you know, you could have the stage area and you could have all your palettes in, in another screen. And that's also great for a Photoshop too. But um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think uh, well anyway. So back to Tweet Miner. So you're gonna have to get a bigger screen just so you can create a. Yeah, I've got to get a bigger screen just to do what they want. So I'm I'm kind of wait the two the the two main feature requests I I'm have to wait for before I can start work because one of them they want to be able to organize people into groups, which is basically Twitter lists, and Twitter haven't released that as an API function. So I've got to uh, wait for Twitter to do that. And then the other thing because I could do my own implementation, but what's the point when Twitter have an API coming you know around the corner in like two weeks. Right. So yeah. waiting for Twitter on that, and then I'm waiting for Amazon on the screen. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. So at, well, uh, I think that's cool. Uh, how many hours a day or a week are you spending on working on this stuff? Really small. I mean, and this is what this is what makes me laugh about um, Hootsuite, who who have like ten folks working on it, um, and you know, just the, even the idea of me being in competition with them is crazy. I mean, I'm I'm spending about an hour a day. Tweet miner, Max. Yeah, see, I, 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 I see. I, I, here's the thing. I mean, and, and this isn't like groundbreaking statement. I mean, you, the Mythical Man Month, it's, the book of Mythical Man Month talks a lot about this. But mm. I don't know. You have such diminishing turns with returns a lot of people because you have spent so much time gets spent with organizing and communicating and agreeing and all that kind of stuff. If it's just like one or two people. Yeah. It's, and, and especially assuming they're like um, sort of experienced highly productive developers i mean you can get a ton done in a small amount of time yeah you can and uh this whole thing of like oh we got like five developers or ten or we got a team in india and a team in china and a team in wisconsin and a team in ukraine or whatever and you're like well i get any much done no <laughs> i get anything done you know it's just i don't know i'd much rather have just you know one two maybe three hotshot developers and do it and not have with all the overhead of all these people. Yeah, I know. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that you can beat them. I, I well, I, okay, <laughs> I'm not beating them. I wouldn't say that. Um, I mean, they, you know, they have way, way, way more people using their system than I, than I have using. Well, let's um, put it this way. Let's put it this way. The amount of hours that you're putting in compared to the amount of hours that they're putting in aggregate on their system and what you're able to deliver compared to what they deliver. So one guy puts in an hour a day versus their 10 people put in well, hours. Well, I, I am sort of more in, I mean, the other thing is I, I'm in maintenance mode now. Like, what, so what I did was I set aside a couple of weeks where I really worked on it and got, got the bulk of it out there. And yeah. now, now my hour a day just goes towards uh, essentially maintenance and just doing very small up, updates. Um, if, for example, if I was going to do this um, multi-stream update, that would probably take me you know, a weekend of, I guess it would take me like 20, 20 hours over a weekend, maybe 25 hours to do that. To do what? To do what? To, to create a new screen uh, yeah. that has multiple, multiple streams. Yeah. Well, just think about this. I mean, how, how many hours do you think it would take that 10 person developer group to do that? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean they'd I, roll it out in like a month, <laughs> you know, at most, I mean, at least they, they would just meetings about it mock-ups and experiments and just it's just well it's, and probably more testing whereas i'm just gonna like you know throw it out untested to to, to the entire user base so, that's fine yeah i mean it's fine but then then you get real data whereas they get this sort of like fake data because you know some of the people internally like it or don't like you just throw it out there and you know what these people who it's experimental they're your power users they know it's an early product it's like you know they know swim at your own risk <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm totally, I'm totally down. I suppose with given, I'm given that man. I'm being radically transparent, right, and everything's out there. I suppose that Hootsuite and Cotweet could use my data to enhance their products. You know, and they may later. Right now, you're so small. You're probably not. Probably, they, they would it just. They probably wouldn't. Um, well, this like, hey, like, just imagine, like, oh, this guy has nine users. <laughs> nine, you know, they're like, oh, give me a break. That guy's a joke, right? Yeah. And, and you're gonna, it's just ego. First of all, the develop, they're they're probably you're not on their radar yet. You yeah, know? that's true. It might pop up on their radar in three to six months, and and then and then they'll immediately dismiss it because it's so early. Yeah. And then when you do finally start 
you know, eating, you know, having a, a, a sort of a, a sizable paying user base, then they're yeah. going to be like, oh, crap, you know. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but the you know, people, I, I think you can make it, you, you, you can, whether you're being radically transparent or just sort of vaguely transparent, yeah. you can kind of glean how big companies are basically by how many employees I have, by a lot of things. So it's like they're not really fooling anybody. I mean, like 37 signals, I'll keep using them as an example, but you know, you could kind of, you could probably sit down and probably guess on a piece of paper kind of what they're making. Just on the little hints and things they've said over the years and stuff, what they're making yeah. per month. I have to go out and say it, so they're not fooling anybody by like, well, we don't like to talk about numbers. Like, dude, you know, I could probably get within a four, 30, 40, or at least half an order of magnitude. Well, you know, I mean, Peldy pulled away from radical transparency because, well, uh, let's just say he doesn't make it obviously transparent anymore because he's earning too much money now. Like, he's embarrassed by how much he's earning. And but not, and that not, might be fine. I mean, maybe that's not fine. only that, but also he's he's sort of worried about. If you disclose those figures publicly, then then essentially you're setting yourself up as a target. If you're doing really yeah, well. That, yeah, because uh, I mean, I I understand that. I guess once you get to a certain size, you know, it, it's like you know, then it becomes bragging. I guess for one, and he's he's like a very, he's kind of a humble guy. He seems to me. Yeah. And so I could see how he'd be very uncomfortable. I mean, it's one thing to say, "Hey, we made two thousand dollars this month. We're really awesome." Yeah. saying, hey, we made 50 grand this month. He's like, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like yeah. an ass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, uh, it's, it's sort of uncouth to be talking like that. So the, the radically transparent, at least in terms of numbers and stuff, probably works to a certain size, at which point you can probably say, okay, we're not really this sort of micro startup anymore. We're making real money. And because, just, I mean, the, the point of the radically transparent thing is it's, it's to give people who are starting out the idea of what that first phase is like because that's that's really the important part right it's like when you're getting from zero to sustainability that's where it's really interesting to know the figures but then once yeah. once it's beyond that, sustainability then ah uh, yeah whatever yeah it's just well it's yeah it becomes it's it's probably less of a story but it's just it's also more of a story right now too right i mean it's more interesting to see you know will tweet miner make it you know can they get to you know uh, 20 or 50 or 100 paying users you know it's kind of interesting but once you right once you reach sustainability you kind of escape velocity it becomes less of an interesting story so yeah. right for a variety of reasons i think that's probably right i think at a certain point whether it's a year or two years or three years in or whatever it takes you to get to that point then it's kind of like you can kind of scale out of the at least the sort of uh, very open talk about you know the the money okay aspect. enough about tweet minor what's going on in the world of jason roberts Oh, let's see. You know, it's my continual thing about juggling a lot of different projects. Um, so the weekends, I tend to crank on the weekends because I just have to, that's the only time I feel like I can make up ground because um, I have a couple of contracts I just get really far behind on and uh, try to make, make it up on those. Um, let's Lo see. Local so, bacon, lo any, any advancement with local bacon? So local bacon, uh, Joe is. I think he's flying. He's he's based at he's based in New York, and he he's flying. He has a bunch of meetings set up um, in San Francisco. I think uh, he's. Yeah. I don't know how many, eight or ten or twelve meetings or something, and uh, maybe more. And they've already have. I don't know. I, I think it was something in the twenties or more of interest. Very interested parties, either VCs or or angels and stuff yeah so really just trying to get that market together of get you know whatever 20 or 30 something interested parties so they can get term sheets from a lot of people and get the best possible terms and so he's going out there and he's flying out and is just going to do a whirlwind series of meetings and so we've been spending the last few days <clears throat> you know just trying to get a lot of this some ui things fixed some bug stuff fixed and um, so I just took today, yesterday I took, and I, I just spent all on local bacon. I just, I didn't do any of the consulting work. Just, all right, I'll just spend all day working on this stuff. And, uh, yeah, there's two, he, you know, and, and, and we've added two new guys who are kind of like, they're, 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 I think they're friends of one guy's a friend of Joe and one guy's a friend of Peter. Peter is, um, sort of like, he was the first employee and both of them are like sort of youngish developers in their twenties. And. They both work. One is a consultant, and one like, works for a hedge fund. But they're both really excited. And they just want to put a little time in it. So yeah. we brought them on, and, and, and 
and there one guy's doing something with like I don't know, with friend feed connect or, I'm not friend feed like Facebook connect and some is doing other it's sort, it's sort of like loose, so it's like, like a marketing type thing I don't know exactly how it works I mean they're gonna it's gonna connect in and do something with those systems and you know I probably shouldn't talk too specific about okay it. sure um, just because I didn't it's not like I went over to Joe and asked him what he comfortable with me talking about or not talking about right but um and uh well you so haven't given much away so don't worry about that yeah well you know i just uh, i it was if it was my company i'd tell you whatever but it's not so um the what was kind of interesting about it so joe set up yammer to sort of keep the communication going oh yeah which i think is kind of works pretty well you know yammer is just kind of like it was it, like a twitter, it's for, twitter business. for business yeah you set up like a private group, and so it's like everybody's putting streams. But it's also more like Facebook in the sense that you your your posts aren't limited to 140 characters. Right. They can be longer, and it's like a Facebook message. And then you can comment. You kind of got threaded, so you can comment on a post, which I think works a lot better too. And um, I think it looks it, it it's working pretty well. I just thought that was an interesting thing. I thought I like I like Yammer for this. Because otherwise, I keep getting. I, I would call my inbox the Joe Essenfeld reader. <laughs> it was like I'd come in with like ten emails from, "Oh, we fix this bug, or can we do this, or we add that." And I'm just like, "God, you know." It's like I hate having a like crowded inbox. I like cleaning it out, and and um, when you have all these bugs and or things for, about the project there, I felt like I can't delete them until those things are done. And now. Of course, if you have multiple people, then this whole emailing thing really falls apart. So the Yammer, I just have my Yammer open, and I just kind of keep my eye on it. And you know, I hear, you know, one of the two of these you guys will post something about what they're doing. Do you right? use Outlook? No, I use Gmail. I, I use Outlook, and I have about 10,000 messages in my inbox at the moment. Yeah, my wife does that too. She, like, has this, like, it's like the idea of moving things out of your inbox is not never occurred to her. And well, so it's, it's, it's it's like I prefer the Google way of doing things, like which is don't try and you know, sort of categorize anything by moving it into folders. Just sort of use filters and stuff. Yeah, I can see that. I I just like to I I just like to get everything out. I, it's kind of like a to do list, so it's like I scratch them out. When it's out of my inbox, it's deleted. So yeah. so do you do you have a like a, a basically a blank Google inbox? You know, I, I hardly ever get down to blank, but I, I usually it seems to hover around three or four. It's like <gasps> Those are those incredible. things that it's going to take me a week to knock out, or there's some message I just haven't gotten back to. And like, what do you I do with you? I mean, where do you siphon the messages? Well, you, if you just say archive, it just goes out of your inbox. It's still searchable. You know, huh. I, can, or I can still add a label. Like you, and you should be able to call them labels. So the same thing as a tag or a category, right? And so if it's something like I really, you know, I need to make sure I keep track of this. Like, for instance, I'm on the homeowners associate, the board of the homeowners association for our condos. And, you know, there's all these emails about, you know, variety of things going on between the board. And I, I need to make sure that I can go back to those if there was something, some kind of document or something. So I just label HOA and I can come back later and look at it. But okay, I've just that, way, up, that, way I feel, that way I feel completely comfortable just getting out of my inbox. And I know I can retrieve it easily. I've just opened up Gmail. I've got 17,224 in my Gmail inbox. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously yeah. do Gmail in different ways, <laughs> right? Right. Um. So anyway, well, that's, I think it's probably with most products, right? Everybody has finds their way of using them, um, despite what the developers thought or anticipated how people were going to use them. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, because you think about designing a, a, a something like this, you're like, you probably think, oh, people are going to not going to leave stuff in their inbox. They're always going to move stuff out. But why would they leave them in there? <laughs> I thought the whole point of Gmail was that you left it in there. And that it was just a searchable system. I think what they say is they they had an archive. Like you would, there was no specific delete. Because right. they say, why delete it? You know, we have we give you plenty of space. Just keep it, and you can search it. So what they but they did introduce a delete, so you can specifically delete something for something you just like. Let's see. So, so many said, people probably wanted it. You know, it was sort of illegal or unethical or inappropriate. Like I don't want this associated with me. I don't want it in my you know whatever. I don't want this around. I delete it. You know. Get it out of here. But we're generally just archive it. You have, know? have I ever told you that I, my Gmail, justinvincent at gmail.com, there's some other guy called Justin Vincent. I don't know whether it's the, the famous football player or someone else, but there's some other guy who, who basically buys things <laughs> online. And he gives, an, an, he gives my email address as his, as his sort of purchaser email address. 
Here. And so I keep on getting receipts for all these things like, um, you know, like a, like he'll buy a tractor or or, <laughs> <laughs> or or like a power jet or even even a mobile home. But <laughs> but this, <laughs> but this week, this week, I got a receipt and, and a UPS, <laughs> a UPS shipping thing for let, let me just say it was. A basket full of sex toys. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Why don't you email this guy and tell? Do you know his real email address? I I don't know. No, I don't. I, I there's no way of going to him and say, "Hey, listen, guy, get quit, you I, know, send your crap to me." Yeah, I don't know, but it was uh, it was kind of funny to have a look in my inbox. My wife's <laughs> my wife saw it and was like, "What are you buying? What are you doing while I'm at work? <laughs> this is not. Uh, that's funny." Hey, listen, there's another thing I want to bring up. So I told you we brought these couple other guys on, and they're just sort of working part-time on these sort of like sort of sub-projects, these small projects. A couple of other guys, sorry, I don't get you. Yeah, and so now we got to like get some kind of source control going, you know, because like... Sorry, this, I, I, I missed the beginning. I, I didn't quite get the beginning. What, well, what are you so talking we about have, now? We brought on the... And, and Local Bacon, oh, um, right, Joe yeah. brought on these two other developers who, who want to contribute, and they're not full-time employees or anything like that, but they're they're working on you know, these, these, these sort of small projects. Yeah. And so uh, now it's like, we need to start getting some kind of a source control going. Right. Cause I, I always joke about how I don't really use source control because it's just yeah, me. Yeah. I yeah. just make happy things to backup directories, which by the way, I had read something recently and about how uh, Linus Torvalds never used after a long time to use source control that he would just stick it in a tarball and save yeah. it. And that was good enough for him. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> exactly. But uh, anyway, so now we do. I mean, source control it becomes important when you have more than one person, obviously. Yeah. Um, backup directory is fine. It was just one person. But um, so I'm 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 kind of thinking like of doing the whole Git thing. I mean, because it's like yeah, you know, some people don't use Git because it's like uh, it's sort of foreign. It's not. It does things differently than people who are used to using, say, Subversion or something. But for you, it's new. Hey, I mean, if I get to learn. If I mean, if I, whether it's Mercurial or Subversion or Git or whatever, it's all going to be a learning curve. So I might as well pick whatever is the coolest, latest thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, even if somebody was going to learn a programming language, you'd say, hey, you know what you should learn? Learn Fortran. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You should learn COBOL. It'd be like, you know, you might have to learn Python or Ruby or something. You know, what's the latest, coolest thing? Might as well be the latest. So coolest. are you anywhere down that path or? No, I, well, I just threw it out there on Yammer. I said we should something i said i think we're going to do something in the next few weeks i mean these guys are kind of siloed off in their own little code base their own little thing so they're not really totally integrated or anything it's not a big deal but it will become a bigger deal and what we finally did you know because i was editing on essentially the live site like i told you i didn't yeah. i didn't have sort of like a production dev test you know yeah. breakdown i mean I've, I've always said that in the past you know with Prezo, i had dev test in production but you know at this point it was just you know, because of it, like we had that many users and it was just things were moving so quickly. It was just sort of flying really loose. But now it's like, okay, we really need to just... So now we have a test version. I think we're going to have a dev version. So we'll have the... Now we're starting to get a little better organized, right? Dev, test, production, source control, you know, all the things. Hey, but, did you use pay, uh, PayPal Payments Pro to do it? Is it? I don't know. I mean, it's, I know it's PayPal Payments. I don't know what... If it, I guess what I'm saying is, is the payment journey integrated into uh, local bacon, or is it? Do you do you send them, pass them back to PayPal? They are integrated into local bacon, so it's just like an API stuff, and then you know, it's transaction gets approved or whatever, and then you can log into. So if someone enters their credit card, they're on local bacon. Yes. And then, but under the hood, you connect to Payments Pro. To, yes. to PayPal. I think I'll, what, I'll say PayPal. I, I'm assuming it's payments, bro. I don't know. And how how easy would you say that was to do? I don't know. It took me like an hour and a half. <laughs> I was like, so the, it was like eleven fuck? o'clock. It was like eleven o'clock at night before our TechCrunch 50 demo the next day, and we kept working on other stuff. And and we're probably like, all right, let's do this thing now, right? And Joe's like, all right, well, I emailed you the API docs, right? And he, Joe is not a developer at all, but right. he's just, he, he knows just enough to be dangerous. Right. <laughs> he knows just enough HTML, just enough Photoshop. He can read PHP just enough to be a danger. <laughs> and so, but he spent some time reading through the docs and said, all right, well, I think this is all you need. And he just kind of emailed me the docs and sample code. What about like, if, so does that include, you 
your hour and a half's integration, right? Does that include if someone wants to update their credit card details? Or is that just the one-time checkout? That was just a one-time checkout because we don't retain the details. So basically every time they're going to need to enter their credit card number. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Okay, so really, so all you've done is you've, you've integrated it to the point where they, they enter fresh new details, it then pings PayPal, takes a payment, takes a charge, and then and that's it. So it's not sort of completely integrated in the sense of it understands who they are, it can, it can instantly make a new payment. Because they have this thing called reference transactions with, with the Payments Pro. And um, what you can do is you can sort of store the, the reference number of the last transaction. And then if they want to make a payment again, you don't store any of their details, but you just click a button and it sends through that, re that reference ID from your website. And then yeah, it pays no, we them don't, again. Yeah, we don't do that. We just have a one time, but that sounds kind of cool. Okay, that's interesting. But it's interesting that, you, that you, at least you're able to get it up and running quickly. Did you use the sandbox? Or did you just uh, did you test it? No. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's You cool. know me. I don't do sandbox. Push it live. You know, well, you figure it's like. Well, how did you it, test the first payment with just with you? you just paid. Joe, was, Joe was like, here's a credit card. And we're making $1 payments, you know. Fantastic. You know, we probably did like 10 or 12. And then it was work, you know, screw up. I like, did well, that. Mostly because when it works, it works. Once it works, it's fine. It's usually yeah. it's like, it's not going through. Why is it not going through? Yeah. Oh, the country code is wrong. Going through. Oh, why? You know, you know, and then you just get it. I mean, it, I've done that before easy. with like 50 cent payments and, uh, and after, I don't know, like 15 of them to, to for the debugging, my credit card company called up and said, sorry, we're canceling your card because the, oh, some, your someone's doing suspicious activity on it. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it, 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 um, it, it was, it was, it was very straightforward. I mean, it's very, it was very straightforward. So I, I, didn't, I mean, did you, you, you've hooked into them, right? Or are you not using? Well, I've hooked into, I mean, TweetMine is hooking into PayPal, but it's not the Payments Pro. It's what, what happens is you basically, on your server, you, you set up like some, some unique session, well, basically transaction ID that's, that's your own transaction ID. So say it's one, two, three, four, five, right? Then you send it off to the PayPal server and they've got a field called custom. And in that custom field, you send your transaction ID, right? So it goes to PayPal. They they're then completely on PayPal. They go through. They log into PayPal. They make the payment, and then finally they click return, and then they come back to your site. And when PayPal sends them back to your site, it sends them back with the custom. So that's how you know how to hook them up to the sort of let's say stub record that you created. Right. Right. Um. Well, that's cool. And so, so under the hood, PayPal connects to what's called IPN, the instant payment notification. And PayPal mm -hmm. says whether it tells your server under the hood, it's like this is their server to your server, so like no clients are involved. And it says whether the transaction is successful or not. So you, so basically, once the client has been directed back to your site, you've already had this instant payment notification. So you can then tell the client whether the you know, you know thanks a lot for registering success or. Oh no, that you know there was an issue with PayPal. Right, right. But it sounds like um, you know the the complete the journey that you've got is sort of a bit better because it's all totally within the within your site. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it wasn't any effort. You know, I mean, you could do it while you're watching TV. <laughs> I mean, I could get an hour and a half. You know, that's really interesting. Just do it. I mean, it's not a big deal. Um, um, I'll, I'll even uh, email you my uh, sample code if you want. I mean, yeah, I'd appreciate it. I mean, I'd, I'd appreciate just talk, at least talking through maybe off, off air. Yeah, I'll email you. I, I can paste you probably like, you know, 50 lines of code. That's pretty much all you need. Fantastic. Really easy. And I do it through like, you know, like an Ajax, you know, thing that goes back to my server and then the server forms, makes the API calls. And, you know. Wicked. Grateful. Um, yeah, so, so um, a couple things I wanted to mention. I... Uh, you know, because we were, you know, we were talking yesterday on the last podcast about um, the uh, not invented here, not invented here, and so I read, I, I reread um, Joel Spolsky's. He wrote a, a blog post yeah. or essay at some point called "In Defense of Not Invented Here," and he brought up the Excel example because Excel had their own C compiler, and they would say their whole their whole mantra was, you know, find the dependencies and eliminate them. Yeah. And they would they would not depend on all this other stuff. And basically, his 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 sort of statement is that look, if it's not a core business function, you know, don't build it yourself. But if it is your core business function, 
if your core really is your core, do it yourself. Yeah. Own it, understand it, you know, and if you can't build it yourself, then maybe that should be your business. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're less competent than other people, you know, at doing your core business and maybe it's not the best thing. And like when I told you I was building our, you know, my own object relational mapper and my own code generators and my own, you know, a lot of stuff like that. I'm like, this is all the core of what I'm doing. So um, I need to understand it. I need to be able to extend it. I need to be able to improve it, you know, at the deepest it, level. So it's funny because, you know, the the one thing in TweetMiner that I haven't built is the library that connects to Twitter. And the one thing that causes me the most problems is the library that connects to Twitter. Right. Well, see, that's the kind of thing that, like, you can lean on a library at first, and then that'll be the kind of thing you're like, all right, screw it, I'm just gonna replace this and write my own, you know? Yeah. I and mean, you could just at point just take take a couple of days and then write this awesome version of yourself that then you can improve and maintain, and you know, and keep it from screwing up, you know. And um, I just listened to a uh, a sort of video. It was a guy, um, something Taylor, I think. Uh, he, Brett Taylor, I think he he was on Tornado, which I think is like a web server that um, the friend feed built for their own use. Oh yeah. And uh, Brett, he was a co-founder along with was a guy who's the guy um, Bouchelet or whatever is taught the guy who wrote Gmail. The guy started friend feed. To know what's his name. Well, anyway, he's I think this guy was his co-founder, and so he's giving a talk, and he's one of the things he was saying is like, you know, he's like I hate using big complex frameworks big code that I don't that I just can't look at understand he's like I look to libraries are like one file that I can look at and understand if not you know I'll just write it myself yeah <laughs> I'm like again that's what I'm saying you yeah. know it's like you you kind of hear these conventional wisdom it's like uh, you know and, and if you take it out of context or you don't really understand when it's appropriate to to borrow or use other people's code versus write your own then you just go on assuming that it's always a bad idea to write your own if there's a library out there that does does it even if it doesn't do it well or and or if it's complicated to understand it. And essentially, you know, I think what people who are really in the trenches who write, you know, who need to re write really efficient, robust quality code that they understand, you know, the, the libraries that use, they're not going to use these big, you know, humongous frameworks. They're going to simple well, things and then build the core themselves. I mean, for me, because their could... ass is on the line, you know, it's like I, Something breaks, and they don't, so it's based on this, uh, this 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 framework that has you know 150 different files. And you're just like, I don't know what the hell's going on. It broke. Well, for me, it's the opposite. Like, I mean, I've I've always written my own, and um, it's it's only after years of doing that that I've finally finally stubbornly realized why it's actually kind of useful to use other people's code. <laughs> and it's you know once I think once you've written your own you know framework and you know template system, and you've done that a few times. Then you sort of understand it, so you can use someone else's, and you'll have a fair idea of where to look under the hood of theirs. But also, you know, because they because it is actually a project that they're doing, they probably would be putting in some other more interesting stuff that you may not have had time to do in yours. And yeah, there's there's been a couple of times where I've used someone else's code, and I've been like pleasantly surprised that it has, you know, this extra stuff that I couldn't be bothered to write myself. But um. Yeah, I think it just depends. I mean, it really just depends. If you can find a library that is really solid and does what you need to do and you understand it, then use it. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, if it doesn't do what you want to do or it's really complicated and it's very hard to understand and you have a hard time deploying it and you have a hard time configuring it and you just can't seem to get it to do, then, you know, don't worry about it. Write your own. Okay, here's here's an example of a great kind of library to use of someone else's, right? Okay, so for, for, for me, frameworks and, you know, maybe database abstraction layers do, you know, I've done those myself, and that I've preferred to do it that way. But say, for example, I want to connect, I want to write a, a script that's going to connect to Gmail, and it's going to mm -hmm. pull down everyone's addresses. Like it's actually a lot easier and faster to use someone else's because there's so many intricate issues. And the good thing is, is that that script's really confined to one function. So mm -hmm. if they've really thought through that and coded that up and made that work. And in actual fact, I'm, I'd be, be happy to pay money for something like that because it's really it really helps me. I mean, I don't want to spend my life, you know, coding a script that knows how to connect to Gmail and pull out pull out user addresses. Yeah, well, that's the kind I like too. I mean, there's like stuff like say I remember. Well, now it's an extension, but there's like a JSON that converts PHP to JSON and back and forth, right? Right. Yeah. 
it's like initially I had written, kind of written my own until I realized that there was something out there. Yeah. And then I used that and I'm like, wow, it works and it, it's solid yeah. and it's just one function call. That's perfect. But using like, say, a big framework where it changes your whole structure of your uh, your app and how you do everything is dependent on how they organize everything. And then you're really like – exactly. I hate that crap. I don't want to do that. You know. I mean, like I said, if, if in a previous podcast, if it came to writing a Windows app, that's fine. I'll yeah. use like the .NET framework to organize the structure of the code when dealing with Windows. But when it comes to like a simple serving up web pages, needing a database, you know, I don't need some really complex, multi-layered, you know, heavily structured environment just to get a web page out there. Yeah. You know, because then you just start. Because as soon as you want to do things a little differently and then just you're fighting against it and you're writing all this so here's a question do you have i mean the way that Parizo works or the way that um any of your other stuff works do you you know do you have your own jason roberts style framework or is everything single php pages that uses includes kind of thing how do you how do you do it yeah it's pretty much i mean there are there are um i'm trying to think of the php side because you've got like the two the two patterns are the central controller where this is the one that I always keep making and I've, I'm on my like seventh iteration of it where I have a central controller and I pass variables to that central controller and then that knows how to, it includes core libraries and then it, it sort of uh, uses a switch system to select a PHP file to use. And that's basically the MVC, right? Do you do, you do that type of thing or do you, you know, every action hits an individual PHP file and then you, you include what you need from within that PHP file? To this point, that's what I've done. It just works fine. Um, I can see why you do the controller. I think that works. I mean, I think all these things can work. It's just however you want to organize it and um, probably each other pluses and minuses. Well, I mean, what I like about the way that you do it is that it's, and this is what, um, this is what uh, the guy, yeah, what was his name again? Uh, the guy who made PHP. This is what he talks Lear, about. What's that? Rasmus Leardoff. Like, uh, you know, the no framework thing. What's good about that is is that every sort of script is its own, you know, discrete object, if you want to think of it that way. Like, conceptually, yeah. everything is its own thing, so it's not sort of coupled with the rest of the system. Yeah, right. It's it's loosely coupled. I mean, that's sort of the, one of the tenets of object-oriented, good object-oriented design is, uh, you know, loosely coupled, highly cohesive, you know, objects do one and one thing only. Not that you can't go through a central controller, because if all that is essentially a dispatcher, you know, that does one thing, and it's just very simple. It just dispatches to other things, to other objects. Or say, I mean, that works fine, too. It's just another pattern, I think. I think that's been a good show. I mean, it's, it's you know, maybe 10 minutes shorter than normal, but maybe it's time to call a wrap. Hey, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, talk to you, I'll talk to you soon, yeah? Yep, later, man. Bye. Bye.